Hello, hello. Welcome to Cup of Taboo. And you're with me, Tala. I hope everyone is doing swell and dandy. I am doing wonderfully. I just did a face mask and it was moisturizing. <laughs> you know, skincare. We we care for skincare down here. Oh, episode three. Whoop, 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 whoop. Today we are going to be giving a short breakdown of the horrific crimes committed by the Krugerstorp serial killers, or as they were known, Electus Podeus. Mostly because I am from Krugerstorp, born and bred, so it was a close one. But also because the docky Devilstorp just came out and it was so good. I just really wanted to talk about it. So I hope you are ready for your weekly dose of entertaining and gruesome information served in a cup of taboo. Whoa! Warning. The following audio contains graphic descriptions. Listener discretion is advised. To start out, I think I need to explain Krugersdorp. Krugersdorp was a mining town in the west of Johannesburg, Gauteng. South Africa, the Wild West, Wusserand, the Villa Ves. <laughs> I'm allowed to make fun of it, I'm from there. It was basically made into a municipality in 1903 and it was named after Paul Kruger, who I believe was one of our presidents. Now, there's not really much mining anymore, just a bunch of really big mine dumps all over the place. Now, <laughs> the town itself is a little rough but it has history <laughs> which rough towns don't have history right now the, the, the town center is like oh, i mean i was born right there in krugerstorp private hospital in the middle of krugerstorp but it's a little bit rough now but you know it's still pretty ish in its own special kind of way and the outskirts on the other hand are really wonderful so I grew up in the outskirts, which, you know, it's like really green, it feels relatively safe, it's really pretty, it's, it's really nice. Um, you know, the, the schools were good, the people were lovely. So to be fair, as well as a child, you're sort of sheltered from hearing, hearing about anything bad and you don't really realize what's going on around you. There was a definite socioeconomic divide in K-Dorp. There was the really, really, really poor areas, such as town and then the not so poor areas and then the really really rich areas like seriously rich so that's something to keep in mind and you also need to remember when somebody is really poor they generally tend to reach for things to get a feeling of something but anyway I also need you to understand that this story is going to re revolve a lot around religion. And like I said earlier, the people who were really, really poor turned to religion in the hopes that it could give them meaning and purpose. But sometimes their vulnerability was taken advantage of. Also, sometimes you turn to the wrong things, you know, like also drugs. A lot of drugs in Krugerstorp. A lot of drugs. And a lot of drugs in the story too. 
Fun fact. <laughs> I just went up before I started with the Krugersdorp serial killers. There was a lot of like satanic claims made for a small town. <laughs> some of them, I mean, obviously some of them are rumors. So if somebody said that because Krugersdorp has five entrances, it makes the perfect pentagram. And <laughs> I mean, it's, I didn't go and look at a map to verify that, but I'd really doubt that. And also, I mean, there was some satanic thing that happened in Rudaford Park. And then also in 2008, while I was in school, there was a boy named Mone Haramsa. And he was in a school that was very close to our school. And he samurai sword decapitated another child at school while wearing a homemade slipknot mask. What? Yeah, that happened. It, we were like, what? Is it safe to go to school? I mean, also, like, anyone who listened to Slipknot was frowned upon at that point. It was like, okay, it's not really their fault. <laughs> so, he he was supposedly a part of a satanic group, which somehow happened to include our main witch of today. I'm not really sure where to begin, so I think I'll just sort of, I'm just going to go and see where it takes me. So... I'm first going to introduce the main players in this scenario. And then I'm going to sort of go from there. Okay, stick with me, please. I hope you enjoy it. Now, the head bitch, Cecilia Stain, she is a 37-year-old woman. She claims to be the ex-head priestess of a satanic cult in Krugersdorp. Now, <laughs> when I read that she was 37, I nearly fell off my chair. Because she looks about 65, no jokes. I'm going to put a photo of her up on my Instagram just so that you can see. Uh, she does not look 37. If I look like that at 37, I'm, I'm going to need to go for some work. But, you know, I, I don't know why she looks that way. It's probably all the, all the drugs and murder. Anyway, she just generally looks gross. I'm, I'm not even going to say sorry, she's a bitch. So she stayed in a block of flats called the Kosana Flats. Now, these flats were across from Krugersdorp Private Hospital, where I was born, in the middle of Krugersdorp. Now, it's a rough area. It's also right next to, you know, the general prostitution street where all the drug things go on. Also, a little tavern is there where we used to go get our booze when all the bottle, bars, bottle stores had closed. So, you know, it's got some history as well anyway she claimed to be part of a satanic group and that she was born to be the high priestess and satan's bride Shempa satan it was said that she was going to open the gates of hell on earth and that is why she was born and why she became satan's bride and all these things so the, the satanic cult like, really wanted her they were like we need you so she supposedly escaped the cult. And I hope you know that I'm ebonying when I say escaped. But she, she also claimed to have very bad health. So she was constantly on a ventilator or some such thing. And she also said that she was a werewolf and a vampire. Now if Twilight is to be believed, those two should be mortal enemies. But I'm glad she was both. Very nice, Cecilia, very nice. Because 
she was the she called well they called her the 42nd generational high witch the group couldn't let her leave because obviously like i said she was destined to open the gates of hell and therefore she was in grave danger and she needed protection because she escaped this world and she said that if she went further than the 30 kilometer radius from her home that the death curse death curses <laughs> death curses would be activated so i'm now just going to skip on through to the next person we've got Zack Valentine uh, Zack let's give it up for Zack as it's Zack my dog's name was Zack may he rest in peace Zack was born on the 3rd of August 1985. He grew up in Western area, which is also in Krugersdorp, and he was diabetic. So Zack grew up in a very religious, very stable household, and he was uber intelligent. I mean, he got a degree in actuarial sciences and mathematics at the University of Potch. But it was said that he was very quiet and reserved. And I mean, look, let me just quickly put out the actuarial sciences and mathematics. Ish, those are hard. <laughs> Good for you, dude. Like, I couldn't think of anything worse, quite frankly. Now he lived in London for a year after he studied, and when he came back, he worked for a bank officer for four years, and then he also went on to work for Discovery for three years. And he also was said to have started his own forex company. They said that he was earning above the usual salary at about seventy thousand plus a month. Now I'd give my left nipple to earn that a month. I'm just saying. <laughs> Take it. Give me the money. His wife, Michaela Valentine, got married to Zach at some point because you know they were both in church together. She was twenty-five years old. And I mean, shame. She had a bit of a hectic early life. She turned to drugs and sex, and then she found church and decided to go into the ministry. She seemed to be incredibly bubbly, beautiful, happy. There's videos of her preaching. She just really, she had this air about her. She just seemed so pure. And she did start studying uh, ministry at the the Rayma Ministry School. But she ended up dropping out of that course when she joined Zach and Cecilia, and then she started getting a bit dark. And you know, she got it. She got tattoos. She dyed her hair black. She was hanging out with the wrong crowd, if you will. You know, they always warn you. She was found murdered brutally on the twelfth of October, two thousand and twelve. I will get into that just now when I'm done explaining who everyone is. Just give you a brief overview quickly. Marinda Stein was a teacher who lived in Krugersdorp. Now she was 51 at the time of the trial, and she had two children, Larue and Marcel Stein. She was described as a lovely, quiet lady who you would expect to bake. Cookies for the next event, before the event that happened. Before,、uh, trust me, when when you hear what she says later on, you're gonna be like, "That bitch." Now her son Larue, he was about twenty years old when he was caught, and he was also said to be super quiet and soft-spoken. And apparently, Marinda 
had abused him and his sister with a bat, but I'm not making any excuses. Now, Marcel Stain was Marinda's daughter. She had just finished high school with six distinctions when she was caught. She had been accepted into university and, I mean, she was a smart girl. Very clever. Unfortunately, uh, the better. Unfortunately, she was addicted to drugs from the age of 14, which is coincidentally when she witnessed her first murder. I think I'd also get into drugs. She stayed with Cecilia for a while and she would get her drugs from her. And often the group would use her as bait because she was a young girl and people trust young girls. Next up, next up, we've got John Barnard, who joined the group in around 2015. Now, he was like full-on draggy. He just skinny, tall, sallow, shallow eyes. Like, just, he looked like a bit of a walking corpse at that point. But he was apparently willing to do anything to get his next fix. And later on, I will explain how he met the group. Next, we have Ria Grunewald, who was a pastor who did psychological counseling for people who were survivors of the occult. Now, she is probably part of the reason that all of this happened, and you'll see why later when I explain what happened, but I feel very sorry for her. And last in our series of people, we've got Ben Boyson. He was the detective who sort of brought everything down, and he looks like someone I want to have a bri with. He looks so genuine. I can't, I just, I just want to meet him and be like, how's it, dude? How you doing? And just have a chat. Those were the people who were involved. That is the Krugersdorp serial killers cast, if you will. I'm going to start by explaining what happened. And like I said, there is a lot of gruesomeness in this. So buckle up, kiddos. In 2012, there were four murders that were called the, sat the Satanic Murders by the media. On the 26th of July, 2012, the police were called to a gruesome scene in Pretoria, where the body of Natasha Berger, who was 34, and Joy Bunzaya, who was retired, were found in a home. In the house, there were Satanic materials scattered around so the police assumed that this murder had to have been occult-related. Natasha Berger was very close with Rhea, and she had actually helped her in presenting her courses. On the 13th of August, 2012, Pastor Reg Ben Dixon was found murdered face down on his lawn by his wife. He was viciously stabbed to death. Last was the murder of Michaela Valentine on the 12th of October, 2012, in her home in Reimsuch, on the outskirts of Krugersdorp. Alrighty, now that I've given you the brief overview of those murders, I want to explain what it is that had happened so that it's hopefully short and easy to understand. Ria Grunewald had a ministry group that she called Overcomers Through Christ that she ran. She was like, super into it, you know. She would have these talks and people would listen, you know, happy. But she also did class where she got taught how to do therapy with ex-occult members to try and deprogram them and integrate them back into society. 
And one day she was contacted by Cecilia Stain, and Cecilia had said that she had escaped the satanic church and that she really needed all the help that she could get. Maria decided to start presenting courses to help survivors of satanic groups, and this was called Know Your Enemy. She used Cecilia's testimony and stories as course material. Now, her and Cecilia would get together and they would write this course, and that sort of, they became quite close this way. The people who were part of this group, they were devout Christians. They were fascinated with Cecilia, obviously, because it's like, oh my goodness, you were a Satanist, tell us more. It's like, you know, when somebody, like, different walks into a room, everyone's like, oh, okay. Or someone's got a different accent. Oh, where are you from? Okay, tell us about that. It's exactly the same thing. Everyone's just like, hmm, you're different, tell us. So, but they, they were all a little bit gullible, and they believed everything that she said. And some of the stories were just such hogwash that I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know. So the people who joined this group included Zach and Michaela Valentine, Marinda Stain, her two children, Marcel and LaRue, and a few others. Now, Marcel and LaRue were only 10 and 12 at the time. And Cecilia would teach them everything spiritual. And by that, I mean she would put nonsense into their heads about how she was a vampire and a werewolf and how she could astrally project and all these things. Now, at 10 and 12 years old, you start believing a lot of things. So, I can just imagine that these poor children... (sighs) Brainwashed. So, at some point, Rhea felt that the Know Your Enemy course was too focused on Satan and not enough on God. So, she decided to rather do another course that she called Know Your Saviour. So she consulted with Pastor Reginald Ben Dixon on this course, and they were working together to make new course material for it. Obviously, Cecilia got like a little bit jealous, eh? Because Rio was like, no longer focusing on her. Like, how dare you put your mind? So she got really jealous, and she would do anything in her power to try to get Rio to be with her, pay attention to her, and just be there. She said that she needed 24 hours protection. Somebody had to be with her 24 hours a day. And when I say that, I mean like literally 24 hours a day. Because if they weren't, the satanic cult was going to come, they were going to get her, and they were going to hurt her. And these poor soft-hearted people were like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. And in this, this is how they got brainwashed. And what Cecilia would do is that she would, she would text Rhea and pretend to be someone from the satanic church and threaten Cecilia's life to try and get Rhea to feel bad to go back and help her. I mean, that's some other kind of manipulative stuff right there. What would happen is, so on certain nights, these nights called high nights, so these were the nights that she needed extra protection, such as Halloween and other sort of, I don't know, satanic dates, and the satanic energies were super strong with this one, you know. Now, on these nights, the ladies in the Overcomers Through Christ group, who were also part of the Know Your Enemy group, would get together at Cecilia's flat and they would sing gospel songs and pray and really get into the jive. And Cecilia would just sort of sit there and there's video footage of it and it's creepy as hell. 
like I promise you, when I first watched it, I was like, ew. But anyway, so apparently she would be there in body, but her spirit was far away going through some other kind of torture. And what she would do is she would collapse and convulse and blood would pour out of her mouth. And these ladies would be like, oh, hell no. And they would pray harder and hit her chest and be like, no, Satan be gone. And they would just try to get her back to snap out of it. The thing is, this tricky little trickster could slow her breathing down and her heart rate down. It was a trick that she learned so that to the layman, it would appear as though she had died. Also, what she would do is she, according to one of her ex best friends, she would go to the doctor's rooms, get like almost like a syringe in a blood bag, I, I don't know, and she would draw her own blood, put it into a latex glove so that it like filled up all the little fingers. She would then tie each finger off so it made like a little bubble full of blood. And then she would cut those little bubbles of blood off and she would keep those. And then on those nights, on the high nights, she would quickly sneak one into her mouth and bite it so that it would look like she was vomiting up blood as though she was being attacked by the spiritual energies. I mean... <laughs> that, it, that First of all, you because blood in your mouth is not something that anybody ever wants because no but also the levels that she went to is insane what happened was Rhea sort of started pulling away from Cecilia because she was pro like focusing on her new course which was the know your savior and what she would do is she would host prayer meetings at her place and she would receive messages while she was in these meetings saying that she had to stop or Cecilia would be badly hurt. Obviously also from numbers she didn't know. And one of these prayer meetings, there was like screaming outside and Cecilia was found in the street covered with blood saying that she had been stabbed. And they think that she actually stabbed herself. It's just creepy, man. Rhea decided to have one last secret prayer meeting, like, with her Bible group. You know, she didn't want to tell Cecilia because obviously there was some, she didn't want anything to happen. But at this meeting, petrol bombs went off outside in the parking lot by the members' cars. I mean, that's dangerous as hell, but anyway. So that was the, stra the last straw for, for Rhea. She walked away from Cecilia at that point. So Cecilia was like, mm, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna leave me. I see how it is. I'm gonna make my own little group, my own little church group right here. We're gonna be called Electus Podeus, which means chosen by God. And in this little group that she made, it was Narinda Stain, her children, Marcel and LaRue Stain, Zach and Michaela Valentine, and eventually John Barnard later on. And a couple others, but they were unnamed due to witness protection. So these people in this religious group got the words Electus Per Deus tattooed in some way or another on their bodies. <laughs> like, cult, glorious cult, you know what I'm saying, cult. So they also 
were paying tithes in foot to Cecilia. <laughs> These poor members were paying over money to Cecilia because she lied to them and told them that there was an orphanage in the jungles of America for children of Satanists who needed to be saved. So she said, no, these Satanists have to give up their firstborn to be sacrificed. And these Satanists had a change of heart, so they gave their firstborn child to her to look after. And they were all living in the jungles of America. So she told the members of Electus Pideus that they needed to pay, well, not that they needed to pay, but that she had this orphanage and they would, out of the kindness of their hearts, pay her money for, for the orphans. Members would contribute to the charity according to how they earned. And Zach was said to have contributed up to a hundred thousand rand at a time. Does he wanna does he wanna contribute that to me? Because I, I think I could do with it more than than some imaginary orphans, eh? <laughs> Obviously this was not going to the orphans because there were no orphans. It was going straight to Cecilia who was still somehow living like a bum. Just saying. Her flat was gross. Like, she didn't look after it. She didn't look after herself. She supposedly, according to LaRue, went to a psychologist every week and ended up spending 23,000 rand a week. Or was it a month? On psychologist bills? But, I mean, even so, that's... <laughs> that's more than most of the country earns. Natasha Berger, who was... She knew... Electus Perdeus, she knew the group, but she also knew Rhea. She was very close with Rhea. She had written a prayer for the children in America, and one night she actually said this prayer, and they called it the dangerous prayer, and I couldn't figure out why, but Cecilia was not a fan. And obviously now, Cecilia is trying to get back at Rhea, so her plan is to just destroy Rhea's life by destroying the people that she loves. What she did is she had told her group that because Natasha had said this prayer, over a hundred children had died in her orphanage. So she managed to manipulate her group of followers, well she managed to convince her group of followers that Natasha needed to be killed. She even managed to manipulate Bible verses to justify why she needed to be killed because supposedly she was killing orphans with her prayers. And these people believed it. Now the plan, so they, they would sit and they would plan every time they wanted to murder someone. The plan was that Marcel, who was a baby at the time, I think she was 14, would go to Natasha's house in disguise and tell her that her cat had run inside her house. Then, once she got inside, she would pep spray her and let the others know so that they could come in and murder her. However, Natasha was... she was a smart woman. And she got wary and wouldn't let Marcel inside, so Marcel aborted mission. Abort mission! And she and ran back to the car and the group left for the night. So that night, they actually did a weird ritual where they mocked her house with, like, chicken feet blood so like chicken feet scratches on her drain pipe and that's like supposedly a sign that you're not gonna make it another day I don't know if that's so true but that's just a thing the next time that they arrived 
Zach and Michaela went into Natasha's elderly neighbor Joy's house and they said that they were old friends of Natasha's and they were there to surprise her. So Joy being the lovely, beautiful lady that she is. Oh, they even had a gift with them. Joy being the wonderful, beautiful lady that she is, she was like, come inside. Let me make you some tea while you wait for her to get home. Now, as soon as they got in, they threatened her. And they said, I'm going to write a note now to Natasha, which said, Natasha, please come see me urgently from Joy. It was all in Afrikaans, but I translated it for all the English folks out there. Also, <laughs> my Afrikaans is not very good. So they put the note on Natasha's door for when she returned from work. And then Zach took Joy into her bedroom, locked the little dog in the closet, and slit her throat. It is said that she managed to even crawl a bit before she sadly passed away. I mean, that is heartless. Now, when Natasha got home, she saw the note, and she, she didn't even, like, go into her own home. She grabbed the note, went over to Joy's house, and knocked on the door, and when she did, she was greeted by Zach and Michaela. She tried to fight them off, but unfortunately, Zach overpowered her, and he also had a knife, so he stabbed her, and she also passed away. She was so brutally murdered that she actually passed away with the note still scrunched in her hand. Now, Michaela freaked out at this point, and she was like, mm -mm, and she ran out of the house back to the car, and a neighbor actually saw her, but didn't really make much of it. She was like, oh, there goes a person running from the house. What happened was that Zach then cleaned, or well, didn't clean up, he took all the stuff and he put it into a bag. And the knife actually poked through the bag. So blood dripped, went down the down the, the driveway while he walked to the car. No biggie, right? So Natasha was made into a victim because of how close she was with Riel. And Tani Joy just happened to be unfortunate collateral damage. Now in August 2012, just after Natasha and Joy's murders, Rhea received a text saying, Hi Rhea, have you said goodbye to Reg? I hope you have. From a number she did not know. Cecilia had told Electus Prodeus that Pastor Reg Ben Dixon was to blame for Rhea pulling away and that they had to get rid of him so that Rhea could come back. The group was like, yeah, okay, got it. They went along with it. Yes, master. What? So, apparently at this time, it was also said that the church that he worked for was pretty much burnt down or something. I wasn't really sure about that. But at this point, Marinda wanted to get into Cecilia's favorite books because, you know, Zach did all the murdering last time, so she wants to do it all this time because she wants to be the favorite. So she took Marcel, her daughter, who was 14, with her and Zach to Reg to do the deed. And Marinda took a knife, Zach took an axe, and when they got there, Zach hit Pastor Reg over the head with the axe. And Marinda started stabbing him repeatedly. Uh, in her trial, she did say that Zach didn't, he went mad, he just couldn't stop. And Marcel, who was just 14 at the time, witnessed this incredibly gruesome, violent murder. Marinda, who is a creep, later said in her testimony in court that she felt an overwhelming release when she killed 
and that she really enjoyed it. What the fuck, Miranda? Now, during the investigation, the police realized that, you know, these victims were involved with the overcomers through Christ Group. So they were interviewing everyone in the group because there's an obvious link. Reg, Natasha, both close with Rhea. So they spoke to Rhea and she said that she had a feeling it was Cecilia. On the day of Pastor Reg's funeral, Rhea received a package outside her door which contained a piece of raw meat and a note that said, Sorry, this is all the doggies left you. Here is a piece of your precious Reggie. It was just a piece of pork, but still, if somebody did that to me, I would leave the country immediately. Like, hey, bye. Change my name, change my number. I'm out. Cheers. I'm, I'm outies. <laughs> Power play. Eat the piece of pork in front of everyone. <laughs> Raw. Now, <laughs> sorry. After the murder of the pastor, Michaela was starting to get cold feet. So she had actually called her mother and she said that she was very scared and that people had been murdered and she she said that she needed a lawyer. And her mom was like, why do you need a lawyer? You haven't done anything wrong. So she said, no, Ma, you know, the police are going to come talk to me and I don't know what to say. And it was actually because of this conversation that the, the cops got a warrant to search the vehicles and home of Zach and Michaela as well as Rhea, Cecilia and Marinda. So when they got to Cecilia's house, there was a lot of weapons. There was a, like, an entire door with knives hanging on it. There was axe, other things. It was guns. It, it was like a, a militia house. And then two days before the police were set to go and investigate Valentine's home, they received a call that there had been a homicide. And they realized at that point that it was the Valentine's home. Michaela's body was found in her bed and it is said that there was so much blood that it was reaching the ceilings and the floor. She had been stabbed over 65 times. Now that's a lot of rage, a lot of anger. And what had happened is Zach couldn't be the one to do it because he needed an alibi because obviously, you know, the spouse is always the one who did it. (laughs) Even in this case, he needed that alibi. So he went to work. But before going to work, he put sedatives in Michaela's coffee because Marinda didn't want her waking up and putting up a fight. And Marinda, and he left like all the doors open and he left everything ready for them. So Marinda took Marcel into the house, which was left open, as I said. She then decided to hit Michaela over the head with a hammer to try and knock her out to make sure that, you know, she wasn't going to wake up. Unfortunately for Marinda, she's dwarf. Because Michaela's head was on a pillow, it was bouncing. So, you know, it wasn't getting the full impact of that hammer. And it was starting to wake Michaela up. Marinda freaked out and she just started stabbing Michaela repeatedly. And Michaela tried her best to fight her off. There were stab wounds on her hands. There were stab wounds on her face. There was stab wounds everywhere. Marcel was said to have just stood in this doorway and watched as this woman, who was like an older sister to her, was getting stabbed and murdered by her mother. Now, Marinda was like, she made Marcel join in, and Marcel stabbed Michaela one time in the side, and then after that, she said she couldn't do any more. The knife was blunt. Marinda took over and just carried on. Zach had actually planned this so well that he had arranged a meeting with 
estate agents that afternoon after work because he wanted to sell the house. He, they were waiting outside the gate. He arrived home from work. They got to the house. He went inside and he was like, hmm, Leafy, boss, yay. Leafy. Walked into the bedroom, put on a huge show, screamed, cried, asked the estate agent to check if she was dead. And apparently after all that, you know, after all the cops were called, he, he still wanted to know if, if the people were still coming to look at the house, if he could still sell it. And he was wondering where his cats were. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, speaking of cats, there's a little gorgeous baby next to me. Hi, friend. Oh, like a little curled up ball. So, that was the satanic murders. They sort of, the cops had like an inkling that it was this group, but there was no real evidence. They, they, they couldn't really do anything. In 2015, things carried on. On the 27th of November, 2015, the Electus Perdeus group was told about a wealthy couple named the Mayers who lived in Nurtjewel, which is uh, one of those rich suburbs that I was telling you about within Krugerstorp. Now, they were told about the Mayers by John Barnard, who was at one point employed by them, and he was complaining to Electus Podeus that they didn't pay him well enough, and they were super rich. So what they did is they set up an appointment with the Mayers to discuss building a water park in KZN. Now, Peter Mayer, who was the husband, had a very bad feeling about this meeting, and he even actually asked his partner to sit in on it, but the partner was busy and couldn't make it. Now, I mean, I would feel so bad. Shame, it's not his, it's not, it's not his fault, but Marinda and Zach entered the mayor's house and threatened to kill them if they didn't open up the safe, and they only ended up getting 600 rand from them and killed them anyways. What happened is the cops looked at the CCTV footage around the house and they actually saw Zach in a bucky with Marinda and they sort of like, oh, what were you doing there? So they said, no, we did have an appointment with them, but we did we did see two other people there, a man and a woman, but uh, 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 just really bad at lying. So they said, okay, actually, we want you to do a lie detector, a lie detector test. Just, just make sure if, you, if you're being honest, it'll be fine. So Zach was like, "Oh hell no, I'm, I'm gonna fail. I don't want to fail it." And they were quite concerned and worried. So in December 25th, Discovery Life, which is a insurance company or medical aid, whatever. But anyway, they got a frantic phone call from Larue Stain calling on behalf of Cecilia Stain, stating that Zach Valentine... Oh, by the way, the LaRue, Mirinda, and Marcel are not related to Cecilia at all. They just happen to have the same surname. So, anyway, he had called Discovery Life, stating that Zach Valentine had passed away in a car accident. Cecilia said that she was the beneficiary to his life insurance, which was a sum of money of 3.5 million rand. The policy was sent for review because, okay, it was only taken out months before the event and the premiums were also in arrears and the last premium or the previous premium was paid in cash a week before the death. So now these are all very dodgy circumstances. These insurance companies have to check up on this because 
generally if somebody's going to commit death fraud, death fraud they're going to do this they actually sent a investigator auditor a guy out to Cecilia's house where she had a interview with him but it was all recorded and it was just so bizarre <laughs> watch Devil's Dorp to see it she said that her and Zach were such dear dear friends and <laughs> when the guy asked her like okay but what about Zach's wife she was like oh yeah, no she died and now he knew that she had been viciously murdered so he you know he probed he was like what what happened so she said, oh, no, she was she was murdered. But they caught the guys. It's They caught two guys, which is utter bullshit. So blatant lies. And at this point, Mirinda acted as Zach's sister. And she had gone to identify the body before his actual family could go. He didn't have a sister. <laughs> These people, I'm telling you, it's like criminal masterminds, but really not. So in 2016... There was a host of murders that were dubbed the appointment murders by the media. People were being called for appointments and then they were being violently murdered and left in the trunk of their car or out in the field. The, per the murderers would take the people's cards and withdraw all the cash that they could. And I mean this is ultimately how they were actually caught. The Rue and Marcel Stain were seen, were seen on ATM footage withdrawing the funds from the murder victims cards. The first victim was Glenn McGregor. He was 57 years old. He was a tax consultant from Randfontein, Randfontein, which is the town next to Krugersdorp, which my dad happens to own a pawn shop there, and it somehow comes into play in this. I'll explain later. Marinda Marcel LaRue and Barnard, John Barnard that is, met Glenn at his home on the 27th of January 2016. And they forced, what happened is they, they shot him. And they forced him to transfer 6,000 Rand into Marinda's bank account after he was shot. And then they strangled him, put him in a bath, turned the hot water on and left him. Where he finally succumbed to his wounds and passed away. The reference on the bank transfer, I mean I've already sworn so many times, but the, the, the reference on the bank transfer was... Quote, excellent fuck, unquote. What? I mean, that's some other kind of twisted stuff right there. You just murdered this man and then transferred all of his money into your account by and saying excellent fuck. I don't know. Yeah, that happened. Apparently, they stole a bunch of stuff and they went on their way. I don't want to say this is absolute true, but my dad, after watching this documentary went and had a look at his records because that's how my dad is and it turns out that LaRue and Marcel had pawned items very shortly after this murder tools things like that suspicious and I don't want to say it but I feel like those may have been Glenn McGregor's next was Anthony Schofield who was 67 years old and he was also a tax consultant so the four in the group lured him into the, into the flat in Krugersdorp, which Marinda now lived in, by the way. Marinda also lived in Kasana Flats. What they would do is they would now book the appointments with these agents and then change the, the address just at the last minute. Like, so sorry, I can't make it. Please, can you come to our place of residence? And obviously, 
the, the agent wanting to get money would be like, yeah, sure, no problem. And they then got him to their flat in Kirkstorp. And they forced him at gunpoint to hand over his bank cards and give them the pins. And what they would do is Leroux and Marcel would take the bank cards and they would be on the phone with Marinda and John. They would get the pin and they would test the pin and if it was correct, they would then kill the person. If it was incorrect, they would keep torturing them until they gave the correct pin. So they withdrew 16,600 Rand from his accounts and they used his cards at various shops in, in Krugerstorp. Schofield was eventually strangled and he was placed in the boot of his car, which was then abandoned. Similarly, Kevin McAlpine, who was only 29 years old at the time, was lured to the Krugerstorp flat on the 26th of May 2016 and he was also forced to hand over his bank cards. A mere 1,300 rand was withdrawn from his accounts, and then he too was strangled and left in the boot of his car. He left his wife, who was pregnant with their child. A few days later, on the 30th of May, an estate agent named Hanli Latachan, who was 52 years old, was lured to the flat, again under the pretense of a business meeting, and she was similarly threatened and 3,000 rand was withdrawn from her account. At this point, she had gone missing and her car was found in front of Krugerstorp Private Hospital and the police had cordoned that area off and they didn't know where to find her because she wasn't in her car. Obviously, her family was like, oh, she's been, she's been, she's been got by the same people who got the other guys, but she wasn't in the car. So they were like, oh, where, where is she? They had actually dumped her body near the Rampantine Cemetery, where it was then discovered the next day. Now, a quick sidetrack. At my dad's shop, LaRue had actually come in the day before Hunley was murdered, and he had purchased a second-hand phone, a Blackberry specifically. And he then returned that phone to the shop just after it happened, I think it was the day after it happened and he claimed that it wasn't working or oh, LaRue you used it as a burner phone and you were trying to cover up your tracks hmm that way they can't track it because I suppose that that's the one smart thing that they maybe did if you know if that is the case but I'm just saying seems very coincidental doesn't it please just also take note how quickly these murders happened. This was over the course of less than a month where three people were murdered for pitiful chunks of change. Nobody should be violently murdered for any sum of money, let alone 1,300 grand. Depths of depravity, I don't understand it. So now after these murders, the accounts that were being emptied were as I said, done by the ruined Marcel at different ATMs, and they were actually caught on the ATM cameras doing this. Eventually, an informer saw the footage and said, hey, that kind of looks like the stained kids. And they were then brought in for facial analysis, and true, it's nuts, it was proven to be them. Now, during the investigation, the Rue actually confessed to all the murders, and he said, no, I did it by myself, it was me. And the cops were like, mm-hmm, you're, you're a skinny child. How, how did you take down a grown-ass man by yourself? 
put them in the trunk of a car and 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 who who are you protecting the lead detective Ben Boyson at one point got a call from an anonymous source that said he needs to go check Marinda Stain's classroom so he took a team of people they searched the room and in some old stoves they found a bunch of ammunition and weapons in her office in school in where children are in stoves what I did I mean take it home put it put it under your bed maybe I don't know I don't, I don't understand so then the police were like oh shit and everyone was like oh shit so the police were told that she had recently updated her will as well and that it was still on on school property so they were like can we see it so they showed it to her and in this will handwritten like just I am a sane mind and body blah, blah, blah. Like she what basically did is she denounced her children because of the crimes that they had committed and that everything will be left to da, 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 Cecilia Stain. Ben Boyson, Detective Ben Boyson was like, hmm, wonder how LaRue's going to feel about this. Took it to him and he was like, hey, hey, you want to, you, your mom loves you, right? So LaRue was like, yeah, she loves me a lot. And he just like, slid the, the will over to him and LaRue was like, okay screw her and then actually broke down and told the truth so it was LaRue's testimony that had finally done it remember the frantic phone call to discovery about Zach dying in a car accident and burning out it was through LaRue's testimony that it was discovered that it was faked in order to get the insurance money which they never got so what happened was the group actually targeted a man named Jared Jackson he was a homeless man at the time that used to sell sweeties on the side of the road with his girlfriend and Cecilia had purchased there before and they actually ended up befriending them and one day Zach said to this guy hey you, you want to go fishing and join us and Jared was like yeah spoils weekend let's do it and on the way to the supposed fishing trip he was murdered in the car by LaRue and John Barnard LaRue sat behind him and strangled him apparently he fought back a bit but he was then moved to the driver's seat and the car was doused with gasoline and set on fire. And Zach disappeared after that. He said that he didn't he did it because he didn't want to do the lie detector test. Also, you know, the group needed money, I'll do it, guys. I'll sacrifice myself. Apparently Cecilia complained bitterly because he wasn't working at this time. <laughs> He's supposedly dead, girl. What do you want him to do? It was also very funny how he was caught. So there was a lady who would, obviously a lovely lady, she would host camping weekends for homeless people, which Zach was now one of. And he would join in on these camping getaways under a false name. And one day, one of the police officers brought home a file that had Zach's face in it, and his girlfriend, who happened to work at these camps, recognized the picture, and he was, and she was like, hey... That's, that's Michael, whatever his name was. And the policeman was like, no, this this is Zach Valentine. He's wanted for a bunch of murders and stuff. Anyway, long story short, she was like, oh, he was like, listen, next time you see him, check he's got tattoos. True as nuts. Next camp, he took his shirt off. Tattoos gave him away. He got caught. So, <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. LaRue had implicated everyone in his testimony. 
And he had made a plea bargain so that he would not spend the rest of his life in prison, you know, just most of it. So he he was willing to just, I can't remember what the words were, but like he was like, I'm going to just tell everyone. And John Barnard was also brought in and his story directly linked to LaRue's story. And they were like, okay, oh, this has got to be true because they hadn't been speaking to each other and they were the same stories. At this point, Rhea had pretty much fled Krugerstorp, changed her name, you know, the whole, the whole toot. Because she feared for her life. And I don't blame her because obviously all these things, all the people around her, all the people that she loved, they were being murdered and she was like, I'm, I'm done. And they eventually found her and they managed to convince her to be a witness for the prosecution. And she said that these people, this group, had also murdered Rhea herself because they had taken away everything that she loved. And now she was left with nothing. When Ben Boyson took over the case, he wanted to link the 2012 murders with the 2015 and 16 murders. However, the dockets and boxes of evidence had somehow gone missing from 2012. And there currently is an investigation on the police handling of the case in 2012, and it still hasn't been concluded. Through a bunch of testimony and a very long court case, the Electus Per Deus group was found guilty of 11 murders, which they actually believe is more than 11. Remember that boy I mentioned in the beginning, Mornay Haramsa? It was said that he was getting counsel with Cecilia, and one of her friends truly believes that it was Cecilia's samurai sword that was used. I'll actually link her friend's podcast in the show notes because it was just so fascinating to listen to all of the stuff. Some of the interesting things that Cecilia could supposedly do was astrally project, as I mentioned, and she was also caught in quite a funny way. It was said that while she was in, you know, waiting for her sentencing and her trial and whatnot, she was like, I need, I need my ventilator, I need my air, I'm terribly ill, so the nurse actually, like, went in, gave her her ventilator, but like it was completely disconnected. And as soon as she put this thing on, then suddenly she was fine, and that's when they were like, oh, she's faking it. Okay, cool, 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 cool. She also was said to have dissociative identity disorder, um, which I'm actually going to do a full episode on, just the, the disorder itself, because it's super fascinating. But basically, it's if somebody experiences ex extreme trauma, their mind creates an entire personality to protect them, basically. She supposedly had hundreds of personalities, one of them being a three-year-old girl named Anya, who would literally be a three-year-old girl, and, you know, I, I don't want to be like, no, she was faking it or whatever, but it's apparently a very rare disorder. After all the bullshitting that she has done, I, I can't believe a single thing that she says, a single thing that comes out of her mouth. In the trial, she sat there and said, no, 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 I don't know what that is, no, I don't even know what that is, that's ridiculous, I don't know of any orphanage, the entire time, like she was making everyone else out to look like footballs, because she's a lying scum, and then the court people, what's the word, the lawyers and stuff, they actually... They couldn't charge her for any murders because she wasn't at any of the crimes. So it was like, oh crap, how are we going to 
How are we going to do this? So they actually came up with this whole scheme of charging the group for racketeering and actually technically charging them as a mob, basically. At least this is how I understood it. So charging them as a mob with her being like a mob boss and their crimes were murder and obviously fraud and stealing and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was very interesting. I was like, that is a cool way to do something. Yeah, that was a brief summary of Electus Prodeus, the Krugerstorp serial killers, Krugerstorp cult, if you will. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know what you think or what you thought. And also, please follow me on my social media handles. It is at Cup of Taboo on Instagram, Cup of Taboo on Facebook, Cup of Taboo on Reason. And you can find your this podcast at any of your podcast suppliers. And by that, I mean Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and most others, really. So... You know, find it somewhere. Please subscribe or like or however these things work. And yeah, give me suggestions. Please. I like hearing I like hearing what people have to say. And I would really appreciate all opinions and ideas and all of the things. Anyway, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you. And I hope you keep it real. And I will see you next week on Cup of Tattoo. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.